2006, March 8th. Today is Lecture 42, Time Travel, which will begin in just a moment. Turn on the cast. So, this week we're talking about frontiers of astronomy. We're going to sort of step off the beaten path a little bit into some problems that don't necessarily have answers. First couple of lectures, I have to admit, by now, even though they were pretty exotic stuff, the future of the sun and dark matter and dark energy, quite frankly, isn't very exotic. Um, it's a very mainstream topic of research. I thought today we would go completely out into the weeds and actually look at a topic which sounds an awful lot like a diversion into science fiction, but in fact actually is an area of very serious uh, inquiry in astrophysics for reasons I think will become clear as the lecture unfolds, and that is the subject of time travel. So today is lecture 42 on time travel. The key idea is, is that we can talk about time travel in two different ways physically. This is actually now a physical rather than science fiction discussion. The first is that we could talk about travel into the future. That's kind of what we're doing right now. This is permitted by general relativity, and there are ways to accelerate one's journey into the future by way of things like relativistic starships move at fast, close speeds close to the speed of light, or Put yourself in the presence of an extremely strong gravitational field for a while. And we'll look a little bit about how that works. It's ways of moving forward into the past by slowing your clock down. The second way, of course, this is what most people think of as time travel, especially people who are either watching or writing science fiction, is travel back into the past. Now that may sound like something which doesn't even belong in scientific inquiry, but we actually can pose scientific questions and at least get the outlines of appropriate answers. It might, in fact, be possible to travel into the past using a structure that comes out of general relativity called stable wormholes. This brings us to a couple of problems that this introduces in the classical theory of relativity that is best known as either the grandfather paradox, which will become clear, it's a plot of many movies and television shows, or the possible resolution of the grandfather paradox in the form of what Hawking, Stephen Hawking refers to as the chronology protect, protection conjecture which is a way of avoiding the grandfather paradox and actually may illuminate what the actual form of the eventual quantum theory of gravity looks like. So while it sounds like science fiction, and this is a pretty wild topic, it's actually not too far off the mainstream. One of the principal people who's worked on it was one of my teachers at Caltech, a man by the name of Professor Kip Thorne, who wrote a marvelous book that I've referenced at the bottom of the lecture. It's a popular level book on Einstein's outrageous legacy, and I, I strongly urge you to read it. Kip was an extremely gifted teacher. I learned a great, from him, great deal from Kip, much more than just what he was teaching in the class. He taught me a lot about teaching just by watching. So in many ways, this sort of lecture is kind of dedicated to Kip to thank him for that. Time travel is something we all do without even thinking about it, like breathing. In fact, it's exactly what we're doing right now. Now, it may seem that time is moving slower when you're in this class, but in fact, time is really physically moving forward at exactly the same rate it always does. In fact, that whole idea that time has a forward arrow is actually not a phenomenon that can be described by classical Newtonian or even relativistic physics. It actually seems to come out of, we think, a combination of Thermal um, statistical mechanics, which is usually called thermodynamics, has something to do with increase of entropy and things like that, and has to do with quantum mechanics, an irreversibility of processes. But be that as it may, we won't worry about how time figures out which way is forward and back. What if we wanted to go to the future faster? What if we wanted to sort of not just simply get there sitting on our butts, but we actually wanted to sort of hike out and get out there? 
For example, if you like the New Year's celebration in 2000, maybe the New Year's celebration in 3000 would be even more cool. How do we get there? How would we actually get there? Getting around the sort of problem that our bodies tend to fall apart around the age of 70, 80, 40, 50, things like that. Well, actually, there's a very simple way to do this, which is allowed by the classical theory of relativity. You simply need to slow your clock down. You need to make your personal biological clock, your sensation, your physical experience of time, be different than that of the time on the wall clock, the time experienced by everyone else on Earth, and then you kind of wait it out. It doesn't seem like 1,000 years to reach 3,000. It seems like 1,000 days, maybe, if you slow it down enough. But the world moves faster around you. That sounds like science fiction, but in fact, it's an observable fact because we observe in special relativity and in general relativity that the rate that clocks move depend upon the relative acceleration or speed of two observers. In fact, the clocks of the GPS satellite are running faster than those analogous atomic clocks on the Earth because they're further away from the Earth's mass. They see a different curvature of space-time. So there is a way to change the flow of time change where you are with respect to a gravitating body. The other way is move faster and faster and get close to the speed of light. So if we look at general relativity, this is the modern theory of gravity, it tells us that if I have an accelerated clock, it will move at a slower rate than a clock moving with a uniform velocity. So for example, I'm closer to the Earth here on the surface, therefore I feel a greater acceleration due to gravity or really due to space-time curvature due to the mass of the Earth. The GPS satellites are up at 20,000 kilometers altitude. They feel a smaller acceleration, and therefore their clocks run faster. So the GPS satellites have to take this into account in their design, or the whole navigation system simply wouldn't fail. You'd, you'd fly your plane into the ocean, because you wouldn't know where you were. Now, you have a choice of accelerated reference frame, and the key is acceleration. One way you can do this is you can build a starship. You can build a, a ship which is designed to, to traverse the distances between the stars and somehow accelerate it to near light speeds, what we call relativistic speeds. The fastest speed we can get to on Earth is a few hundred miles an hour. We can maybe get close to 1,000 miles an hour in very, very fast high Mach aircraft and spacecraft, but we really can't get close to the speed of light, which is 300,000 kilometers per second. Remember, it took the Apollo astronauts a couple of days to get to the moon. It takes light only a little over a second. That's an awful lot of distant difference in speed we have to make up, but it may be possible. And, of course, the other way is you can get yourself in close proximity to a very strongly gravitational field. A very strong gravitational field gives you a huge acceleration, and the best place to find that might be near the surface of a black hole or a neutron star. Those are not near very nice environments, but you could do it. In fact, all of these have been used as plots of various science fiction stories of various kinds. For example, relativistic starships causing problems appears in works by people like Greg Baer and Stanislaw Lem, and even gravity near black holes has appeared as, as various and sundry plot twists, but not only from Star Trek, but also various science fiction. Let's take an example of how this accelerated frame stuff works in real numbers. By doing the relativistic starship thing, we're going to take a journey to the galactic center, and we're going to use our two fav favorite sentient test particles in this class, Dick and Jane. Now, for those of you who remember the Dick and Jane... David, how many of you remember the Dick and Jane readers? Did any of you see those? Yeah, okay, a few people got those things. Yeah. Dick was always older than Jane. So Dick is about 22, Jane is 20 at the time. Jane basically is in charge of the mission control for this journey, and Dick is the one who's going to get in the spaceship, and he's going to fly in this relativistic spaceship to the galactic center, which is located 8,000 parsecs away from the Earth. 
He's going to do that by accelerating at a relatively light weight, one gravity. So according to Dick, it's going to feel just like the gravity on Earth inside of his starship. To do that, in fact, it turns out if you accelerate at one gravity for about a year or so, you get very close to the speed of light. It just takes a huge quantity of energy. So he accelerates at 1g halfway. At 4 kiloparsecs, he flips the ship around and decelerates at 1g. So it's a very comfortable one gravity of acceleration. He tools around the galactic center, studying the black hole for about a year, and then returns to Earth using exactly the reverse route, accelerate for 4 kiloparsecs halfway at 1g, and then decelerate to bring him back to rest into orbit around the Earth. Now, Dick's clock is accelerated with respect to the Earth. He knows he's accelerated because he feels all the sensation of acceleration, whereas Jane on the Earth does not feel that she, she knows that Dick is the one who's moving and she's there on Earth. So the round trip, according to Dick's clock, he carries a very high-precision atomic clock with him, only takes about 42 years to traverse that 8 kiloparsecs out and 8 kiloparsecs back. So he's traversed 16,000 parsecs, multiplied by 3 to turn that into light years. He started out at 22, it takes him 42 years to take the journey, he returns at age 64. But in the reference frame of the Earth, which is not accelerated, Dick's trip takes 52,000 years, because he's traveling at near light velocity after the first year, so he's effectively moving at the speed of light, and then he comes back. So if you accelerate at 1g, you don't ever pass the speed of light, you just sort of creep up on it real slow. So for the people on Earth, 52,000 years is a terribly long time. It's about the light travel time out and back to the galactic center. The reason why the difference of time traversal is because Dick's clock is accelerated and Dick has a is a biological system. The clocks of the cells in his body are also accelerated and therefore run at a slower rate relative to the clocks back on Earth. Jane has long since died. People don't live 52,000 years. In fact, when he gets home, he finds out that after a nuclear war, humans have been replaced by sentient warthogs as the dominant species. You're going to notice a lot of bad science fiction titles in this lecture. I really couldn't resist. I watched a lot of science fiction when I was a kid. I still do. All right. Now, the trip I've described in a starship is really a bummer for science fiction writers because it's kind of a bad plot device if you have a society that sends out relativistic starships and the crews of those starships get separated from their home governments by thousands of years of history. A few plot writers have used that. Robert Heinlein, for example, used that in the original Starship Troopers thing. The Starship Troopers actually had to live separate from the Earth because they traveled at relativistic speeds, but uh, the movie version sucked. Don't even bother. To get up, if you... If you manage to accelerate at 1g, one Earth gravity, in about 10 years, you're going to get within a fraction of a hair of the speed of light. And that's actually, to do that, requires an absolutely enormous amount of energy. So much energy, in fact, that if you wanted to build a hypothetical matter-antimatter drive, and I'm going to be generous and make it a 10% efficient matter-antimatter drive, and matter-antimatter transportation is not 100% efficient. It's only about 10% realistically, maybe 50% if you're really clever. To do that, you have to then convert matter into energy and convert that energy into propulsion. To do that, to accelerate a modest-sized starship up to the speed of light at 1g requires 1.5 times 10 to the 13 metric tons that you're going to consume for every 1,000 metric tons of payload. And 1,000 metric tons of food for a 42-year journey is not very much, much less life support and everything else. 
So the fuel loads add up tremendously on this sort of stuff. In fact, to, no, to give you an idea of what 1.5 times 10 to the 13 metric tons is, you would have to consume completely matter into energy a two kilometer across asteroid. That's a huge amount of energy, and there's no way we even know to begin to tap that. It's a really difficult and nasty problem. And actually, it's one we're going to revisit tomorrow when we talk about the question of life in the universe. It's a real barrier. The distances between the stars are vast, and they're very difficult to bridge, and the energy required to bridge them is tremendous. Now, that's travel into the future. We can also play the game that you, you climb into a starship and you hang out really close to an event horizon in a black hole for about four years, and then you pop back out again, and the clocks, of course, in the regular world have moved on faster. That's, a, that's another plot device that's been picked up, although it's the same deal. It's just an accelerated reference frame. Now, even though the acceleration of the starship or the acceleration you experience in proximity to a black hole makes the clock run slower, it's still moving forwards in time. So even though you may only spend 40 years in the relativistic starship compared to the 52,000 years it takes to make that trip, it's still 42 years forward into the future or 52,000 years into the future, depending on which frame you're in. What about the real time travel, the one that actually makes for all the cute plot devices? What if I really want to go back into the past? Okay? What if I wanted to soup up a DeLorean with Mr. Fusion and go back to my childhood or beforehand? Well, to travel pat backwards to the past, you have to make your clock run backwards. And in relativity, there's only two ways to do that. Travel faster than the speed of light, which is physically impossible. And some, that's it. That's it. You've got to travel faster than light. But classical, special, and general relativity absolutely re re refuse to let you travel faster than the speed of light. It takes an infinite amount of energy to reach the speed of light exactly, so twice infinity doesn't get you twice the speed of light. It just isn't going to happen, right? Once you're infinite, you're kind of done. So it's a real problem to accelerate faster than light. But there may be a way out. And that way out is in general relativity, through the curvature of space-time around black holes, to a rather odd little corner of the gravitational field theory called the wormhole. Wormholes are not a science fiction invention. They, in fact, come mathematically out of the physics of classical general relativity. They're tunnels of space-time that connect two widely separated points. Basically, they're like a black hole, but unlike a black hole, they don't have a voracious singularity, an infinitely compressed chunk of matter that was the original star at their center. These two singular what is, is you get two singularities join up across hyperspace, and the individual singularities that form the original black holes annihilate. All hyperspace is is basically a way of getting out of the normal three dimensions of space into the other dimensions. Now, you can describe it mathematically, but I'm not even going to try to draw it. <laughs> now, when the, when the event horizon annihilates, the wormhole actually grows. It opens up a big tube between two completely different parts of space into a certain maximum size and then it starts to contract back again. It feels its own curvature. There's a feedback that goes on. And it finally pinches back off. Two new singularities form. And you go back to the two original black holes. So wormholes are transient. But they're perfectly allowed by classical general relativity. The thing is, they just don't last very long. How long is difficult to compute? But various computations might be nanoseconds or microseconds or seconds. So if you want to pass through a wormhole to go from point A to point B, without being anywhere in between, or maybe to go from time A to the past without being between, you've got to do so pretty fast. 
So here's a cartoon from, from Kip Thorne's book showing these wormholes. We have hyperspace here. We have two different, this could be two different parts of our own universe. This could be two parts of two completely different parallel universes. It really isn't specified. The black hole sits here as curved space-time. It has a singularity. The singularities meet up across hyperspace and join and annihilate. So now there's no more singularity. A tube opens called the wormhole. Looks like a wormhole dug with a worm burrowing through a chunk of wood. In this case, it's gravity burrowing through space-time. It grows to a certain maximum size and then begins to pinch off and two new singularities reappear and the black holes reform. So that's all really a wormhole is. And it's perfectly allowed by classical general relativity. You actually can do the mathematics of it, the physics of it, and study their properties. Now, it turns out that when people have done that, when people have taken the so-called wormhole solutions of general relativity and explored them in more or less real universe conditions, universe with matter in it, universe with radiation in it, what they find is that you, it, wormholes are wildly unstable. A classical wormhole is incredibly unstable. The slightest bit of, the slightest photon of, of light, the slightest scintilla of matter. Cripes, even a snee, fl flea, sneezing asymmetrically causing a slight gravity wave in space-time makes these things slam the door shut between the hole, inside the hole. So any normal matter, which has what's called positive energy or light that enters a wormhole while it's opening up, causes that wormhole to immediately collapse in your face. So you think you're going to be clever. You kind of hang out near a black hole and you kind of watch. And all of a sudden you realize the singularity's gone. You slam your foot on the gas to drive your starship through. The minute you enter the event horizon of that wormhole, it slams the door shut in your face. And the singularity you thought wasn't there is there. And the tide forces shred you into spaghetti before you even know what's happening and you die. So wormholes in a classical sense are utterly unstable. You try to enter them, you die. But that's because you're made of positive energy. Now, there's also something called exotic matter. Exotic matter is basically any matter that isn't regular matter, which has negative energy, right? Regular matter has positive energy. Light has positive energy. But it's possible to pose it in a classical theory, something called exotic matter. We've never touched exotic matter. We've never made it, but we can imagine it mathematically. If you shove exotic matter of the right amount and configuration into the wormhole, it has been shown by some people that you can actually stabilize the opening. So one conception is what you do is your starship comes in, and just as you begin to enter the event horizon, you spray out a ring of exotic matter. As that ring opens up, it shoves the wormhole apart, and then it closes behind you as you move out of it. But the, the exotic matter acts for just a second to open that thing and hold it open long enough for your starship to slip on through. So that's actually an allowed solution of classical general relativity, sort of a way of making a special kind of matter. We have no idea what exotic matter will actually be like. We have no idea how to make it, but we can imagine it. It can actually let you do this. This is really cool, because if you can do this, you end up with this wonderful cosmic shortcut. Right, Because classical world requires you to go from point A to point B and be on the shortest path between them. But what if you could dig a hole between them and sure, circumvent all that space? For example, you could build a wormhole which has got one hole out there at Vega, the other hole open at the Earth, and you have only one kilometer of distance through the hole there may be 26 light years of ordinary space between you and the star Vega. But through your wormhole held open with exotic matter, 
from one event horizon to the other is only one kilometer. So you could literally just sort of get in, walk through or jump through, and end up on the other side. Any of you who saw the movie or read the book Contact, that's basically what the plot device is there. That's how the astronaut gets from the Earth to Vegas through a wormhole. You don't have to travel 26 light years, you traveled a few kilometers. You dropped a few feet. The problem is, how do you build exotic matter? But let's ignore that. Let's assume exotic matter does exist and we can figure out how to make it. Not only can you open up a hole to different parts of space, but you can in principle build a kind of time machine using a wormhole. Let's see how you do this. Let's take back Dick and Jane again. They're going to do their journey to the galactic center. This is a scenario which was thought up by Kip Thorne in his book. Both of them share a wormhole which is one meter long through the hole. Dick carries one end in his starship. Jane keeps the other end on, on, on the Earth. He's got exactly the same starship we had in the previous problem, some kind of relativistic supermass thing that accelerates at 1G, decelerates at 1G. He takes his journey. Now, as they travel, they talk through the wormhole. Since they're only one meter long, it doesn't stretch as he travels because it's a wormhole. It doesn't have to stretch. The size of the wormhole is fixed by how it was created. Then he looks in there, and they agree. When they're looking through, they can see each other's clocks, and they can agree on the time. Neither of them is accelerated relative to the other through the wormhole frame. This is the weird bit. So Dick leaves in about 2002, heads out on his 42-year journey, carrying the other half of the wormhole. The whole 42 years, he and Jane are just chatting the whole time. They meet up every day, exchange news, whatever. Now, Dick returns to Earth, and he looks through the wormhole and says, Jane, what time is it? And Jane says, oh, it's September of the year 2044. 42 years since his, over his journey. He says, oh, okay. So that's, I'm, I'm inside the steel starship. I'm talking to the wormhole, and Jane says, yeah, only 42 years has passed. You're looking pretty good. Then he pops the hatch. He pops the hatch, and he looks out through the spaceship, and he's on Earth. And he sees a, a warthog passing by and says, what time is it? And the warthog says, grunt, grunt, snuffle, snort, which translates as September's 5740428, monkey boy. And Dick says, well, that, that sucks. So he crawls back through the wormhole, ends up on the Earth in the year September 2044, leaving his ship and the other side of the wormhole in the future, in September of the year 57428. Well, that's pretty darn weird, but that's exactly how a wormhole time machine works. Similarly, there's nothing to stop Jane from, since the wormhole's open, Jane can go back there, check out the future, and then go back to the past. But notice, they go back to a relative past, because 42 years has still elapsed. Dick cannot go back to any earlier than the other end of his wormhole, which is 42 years of round-trip travel time by his shared clock through the wormhole. He can't go back to before he left. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a time machine, but it's not the kind of time machine we really want, which is to let me go back before I leave. But this is a type of time machine that is allowed, at least possibly, by classical relativity theory, if, and that's only if, you can somehow contrive to make exotic matter open up and keep that wormhole alive, keep it open at one meter long for the whole 42 years of the journey. You've dragged the thing all over space relative to real space. It's a wacky idea, but this is mathematically how it actually works out. It's pretty strange. Now, what if we really want to go back to the past? What if we want to go back to before we left? What if we want real honest-to-God time travel? 
Now that brings up something called the grandfather paradox or Dick and Jane meet the Terminator. This is a common plot device and it brings up the problem of the grandfather paradox. Dick and Jane grow up, get married to other people and have kids. Turns out Jane's son is a little twisted upstairs and he turns into an evil psychopathic genius and he figures out a way to manipulate wormholes with exotic matter to actually breach into the actual past. He breaches back in the year 2015. And he opens up a wormhole that opens into the past. Meanwhile, in the year 1920, a wormhole opens up and this cyborg, a big guy with an Austrian accent, pops through and shoots Jane and Dick's father, who is at that point a small child living in the Midwest. Herein lies the essence of the grandfather paradox. If their father is blown away by an Austrian-accented cyborg who looks mysteriously like the governor of California is killed before Dick and Jane are even born, how can Dick and Jane possibly survive to marry someone else so that Dick and Jane's parents' grandson can invent the wormhole to send the cyborg back? That sort of thing absolutely drives people nuts. It doesn't seem to bother Captain Kirk or James Cameron one tiny little bit, but it absolutely gives physicist Stephen Hawking the screaming willies. It's a problem, because what it means is you can alter the past and therefore alter the future. It's a, real, it's, it, it's a common staple of science fiction programs. So this sounds like something we shouldn't even be discussing in a science class, but in fact we can. Because Hawking took this as a point of departure and said, look, the grandfather paradox is such an obvious outcome of a classical wormhole time machine. How can we, what does it tell us? What is having this almost inexplicable paradox? You go back and you kill your own mother. You know, the whole Back to the Future series of movies, which had never been made in the first place, should be physically disallowed, not just simply in a, in a cultural sense. And that whole conceit of going back and altering your own present by changing your past, the Terminator whatever, shouldn't be allowed. If it shouldn't be allowed, what does that tell us? So what Hawking's discontent got turned into something refer he refers to as the chronology protection conjecture. But Hawking's reasoning is as follows. If the laws of classical relativity, there's no quantum theory in here, allow the construction of a classical time machine, a classical time machine here is a wormhole constructed using exotic matter, matter with a negative energy density. That's permitted, but if the grandfather paradox is so inextricable, maybe, and this is the conjecture part, that the laws of quantum gravity, which we do not yet know, must be formulated in such a way that would forbid the construction of this particular type of time machine. Perhaps something about quantum fluctuations would roll through the, 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 the wormhole and destroy it, despite the best efforts of exotic matter to hold it open and therefore would basically negate the grandfather paradox. He refers to that as keeping the world safe for historians. Now this sounds again like a science fiction thing, but it's actually an important, it's a potentially an important insight. If we accept the grandfather paradox as an inextricable and really perverse paradox, it simply allows us to do things which make no logical sense then maybe what that's telling us is that the proper formulation of the laws of gravity that include quantum mechanics, which they directly do not, this might give us some hint as to what those rules might look like. The rules should prohibit the formation of a time machine using exotic matter. It should basically prevent the grandfather paradox from actually happening. 
Now, there's another way out of the grandfather paradox, and that's what's called the alternative histories hypothesis. This is a little con contrary to Hawking's idea that it tells us something about quantum mechanics. The way to avoid chronology protection whatsoever is to say as follows. In universe number one, a cyborg pops out of a wormhole in 1920 and kills Dick and Jane's father as a child, and Dick and Jane are never born. So in that alternative universe, there is no future for Dick and Jane. But in universe two, that cyborg entered a wormhole in 2015 and vanished from the year 2015, never to return. Dick and Jane's father, in that universe, grew up so that Dick and Jane were born, lived to the year age of 85, and had 10 grandkids, including the psychopath who built the wormhole and the cyborg. In this case, you avoid completely this whole problem of chronology protection by simply saying that the wormholes do not connect our past, they connect an analogous past in an alternative universe that lives exactly parallel to ours in hyperspace, in which Dick's father is a child in 1920, but in one of those universes, nothing happens in the other universe happens, well, he'll be back, and there's no more Dick and Jane. But their futures are different. The wormhole simply connects those alternatives. I'll to be honest, I don't like this one as much. In many ways, because it seems to sweep the problem under the rug. But it's a way of getting around it. But it opens up a different question, and that is, if in fact a wormhole joins two alternative but more or less parallel universes, parallel within some kind of higher dimensional space, which higher dimensional space, I might add, has been conjectured to exist as ways of answering the question, what happens before the Big Bang? Normally, that question becomes nothing more than a conjecture. All right, if I want to pose it that the universe was born as a quantum fluctuation in a multidimensional multiverse of which there are multiple universes, that's nice, but it's utterly untestable as a hypothesis. It's untestable because no observation I can make in my universe gives me any contact with the other one, so I have no way of checking it. But if this is the way out of the chronology protection problem, then that means that there may be a way to physically connect two different universes and therefore ask, test the hypothesis. So it's actually not such a crazy idea at some fundamental level because it actually may be the way to invest these so-called multiverse theories for trying to understand what happens before the Big Bang, understanding how this kind of physics could work, which also requires a quantum theory of gravity to understand if those wormholes are openable, opens up that particular line of ideas to scientific inquiry because it is a potentially testable hypothesis. Now, I don't want to get into the, how the technology to test that hypothesis might come about. I have absolutely no idea how to make a wormhole. Neither does a psychopath living in the year 2015, a Skynet virus, or whatever. But if we could contrive, if we could show that those are plausible physical constituents of our universe, they tell us something. So the silliness of this thing as a side, this, the lecture sort of does have a certain aspect of silliness. It's kind of fun to give and fun to write and listen to, but... If we sort of step back a bit, all these fanciful scenarios about exotic matter and quantum wormholes and all that stuff actually have served a purpose. The first of these purposes have led to deeper investigations of some neglected corners of our ideas of space, time, and gravity. Wormholes exist in Einstein's theory. He didn't put them there. They are part and parcel of the mathematics and physics of general relativity, of curved space-time. 
we would not have otherwise explored those corners of these ideas had we not had the imagination to imagine a wormhole or something else. The other thing it can do, what, what inquiries like this and the things which seem like they belong to the realm of science fiction is they're often very illuminating problems. For example, if Hawking's idea about chronology protection is correct, maybe these particular lines of inquiry are ways that we can sneak up on the quantum theory of gravity. We don't know how to formulate a quantum theory of gravity yet, but we do have maybe some ideas about how we might suss out what some of its laws might be, what some of the rules that might govern it, and that will help us begin to sift among the various many possibilities which currently exist and zero in on the ones that actually are going to turn out to be right. That may be 21st or 22nd century physics, but that's an area. And finally, sometimes having a crazy idea, but playing by the rules of science, that your hypothesis must be testable, that you must be able to verify it and stick to the rules that you have and looking at the consequences of explorations of those, is basically sometimes it leads you to surprising results. When Einstein formulated relativity in 1915, at the beginning of the Second World War, he didn't think about black holes. He was just basically trying to understand how special relativity could be transformed into an accelerated reference frame and how he could explain gravity in the context of relativity theory. In 1916, Carl Schwarzschild, exploring the mathematical possibilities of one of the solutions of relativity, discovered black holes. What else remains hiding in those theories when we ask these questions that we never dreamt of? That's the beauty of scientific inquiry. Scientific inquiry is not so much about what we know. It's how we've learned to confront what we do not know. And it's part of the tools that we use often lead us in very surprising places. Maybe to the future. Maybe, perhaps, to the past. See you all tomorrow.